Welcome to New Dawn. This week, we have a special two-part series with the Race and Capitalism Project's postgraduate fellow, Cherise Spurgeon-Stelly, author of W.E.B. Du Bois, A Life in American History, and writer, director, and filmmaker, Boots Riley. Thanks for tuning in. Boots Riley is an American rapper, producer, screenwriter, film director, and communist activist. He is the lead vocalist of the Coup and Street Sweeper Social Club. He made his feature film directorial debut with Sorry to Bother You, which released in July 2018, which he also wrote. His latest streaming series, I'm a Virgo, will air on Amazon. Boots, thank you for being in conversation with me again. Oh, yeah, no problem. You know, it was a fun conversation. Figured we might as well do a part two. Absolutely. There was so much that we didn't get to touch on. What we're referring to is that on October 27, 2020, we did an event with the Claudia Jones School for Political Education called Anti-Capitalism in These Times. And so this is our follow-up conversation because there was so much we didn't get to touch on. And of course, so much has happened even in the two months since we spoke. And it's great to be talking to you on this rather auspicious day. As we know, it is the birthday of the revolutionary Thomas Sankara. Well, happy birthday, no, Sankara. Happy birthday. It's also the birthday of Samuel L. Jackson. So, <laughs> about that. <laughs> so, as I mentioned, so much has happened since we last spoke. Of course, uh, Joseph R. Biden and Kamala Harris are the new president and vice president-elect. They won both the popular vote and the electoral college, despite claims to the contrary. Of course, Trump showed up on his regular BS, right, with all the lawsuits and the machinations, which appear to have all fallen flat. On November 26th, we had the largest strike in world history in India with over 250 million workers and farmers. Just today, German Amazon workers went on strike for the ways in which Amazon as a company was disregarding their collective bargaining agreement. We have movement on this quote unquote stimulus bill, which is actually a mitigation bill, which has resulted in a paltry $600 for ordinary people, where there is, on the other hand, $120 billion a month promised to be paid to the banks in the form of bonds. And then, you know, earlier this month, we had a $760 billion defense package passed. Alongside all of this, we had elections in Venezuela and in Ecuador that affirmed the global left and pushed back against American imperialism. And of course, we've had the rolling out of the Pfizer and soon to be the Moderna vaccines with, of course, the United States and European countries hoarding 54% of those doses while having only 14% of the world's population. And yeah. of course, I, perhaps I'm burying the lead. Your show, I'm a Virgo, uh, your upcoming series has been ordered by Amazon. So this is what we'll dig into today. And of course, we'll circle back to some of the things that we didn't get into in October. So okay. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So just anything, do you want to start off with any sort of comments on what I've um, Yeah, well, one, I'm really inspired by the general strike that happened in India. Some of it is still going on in different ways, but I had heard 250 million, but even 200 million is, is a lot. And, and what I like to point out about that is one, 
very few people have heard about it. Like it, I heard about it like a week after it happened myself and I'm looking for that kind of stuff. So I can imagine how much has been kept from the average everyday person. And as a matter of fact, I don't have to imagine, I can look at every piece of mainstream media and it wasn't in there. And many even radical media didn't know about it at the time. The reason that we don't know about it is because they don't want us to be inspired. And, and now that was not just, you know, just a labor strike just for wages. They had demands that were policy demands. And it was something that was led overtly by communists in India, right? As part of a longer thing. From what I've gathered, they didn't just say, we need to do a strike on this date. Why don't y'all have a general strike? We see a lot of radicals on social media doing that. General strike, November 6th or whatever. And But the point is, is that they organized for decades. They organized in workplaces for decades with an outwardly radical vision. Now, it's still you know, left to be told what will happen from it, but they're in a, in, a, in a really good place. I will say that it is the largest general strike in human history inside a, an, a system that's still capitalist, but I would say maybe the largest general strike in human history was the Chinese revolution, right? So, I mean, they just took it further, right? But so, so yeah, I think the, these are inspiring times when you couple that with, and I think I said last time it was 900, but it's actually now 1,100 and something strikes in the United States, mainly wildcat that have happened since March 15th. So that's very exciting news. And, and just to comment on what you were saying about elections, it's funny, liberals were in a, certain liberals, you know, were in a very strange predicament when the machines that they claimed made Maduro able to cheat and win in Venezuela, which he didn't cheat and win. He was very support, has a lot of support in Venezuela, but they were claiming he, was, he used the voting machines to win. Those are the same machines that they used in our elections here. So they were in a tricky situation where like, do we say, you know, when Trump said, hey, you know, these are the same machines we claimed Maduro used to, to, to cheat. So therefore they're able to be used to cheat. Nobody wants that talk out there. Nobody wants that talk out there. So the, you know, one reason why you don't see all that happening right now with the, you know, in, in mainstream media where they're focusing, focusing on the election, which Maduro overwhelmingly won, is because they can't use that same lie that they used before. So either it was a lie and this is a lie, or this is, or it's true that this election <laughs> was manipulated and that one could have been manipulated. But they they don't they want to cast doubt on other elections that are have a lot more checks and balances than frankly we do here you know that's that's just the comments i wanted to say about what you said sure and so we actually touched upon the first question that i wanted to ask that was about in addition to the thousands of over a thousand strikes both wildcat and other forms of strikes that have happened 
we have the strike that happened in India. And my question was, is this a reason for optimism about the collapse of capitalism? And also, how can we build on this momentum? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't think capitalism just collapses, like we bring it down. And my optimism is with the idea that, you know, radical movements are growing and that people here are looking for ways to get involved in radical movements. And so, you know, I'm just kind of phrasing that in a different way because sometimes there are people that try to read the tea leaves. Is capitalism gonna implode on itself and this and that, you know? And it doesn't, it doesn't. It always figures out a way to rebuild unless we tear it down ourselves, right? And so what I'm excited about, you know, with, with what just happened in India and, and what's going on all over the place right now is I think like we talked a lot about the new left on the last time that we, we talked, but one part that I think I left out that I believe is like in the 60s, all around the world, there were all these anti-colonial movements and revolutions at various stages that were way more advanced than the radical movements were here, right? So they were in armed struggle stages, but they had had the stages beforehand uninterrupted, not on not unattacked, but but they had kept the other stages beforehand, which were organizing labor strikes and other sorts of organizing, like so that what you had as revolutions were was the result of community organizing. We, th we think about revolutionaries in China and the Soviet Union, and, and, and we think about them as revolutionaries. But if you think about their whole movement, a big part of it was things that we would think of as community organizers, like folks that that not just because, you know, when we think of community organizers, sometimes we think of folks that are, you know, have the good, cool nonprofit job and they visit and they do these sorts of things, but folks that were embedded in their neighborhoods, embedded in workplaces in certain areas, people that were known and popular to folks for fighting for them. And that built up to a revolutionary period. And I think some of the admiration of what was going on in the 60s led to people trying to skip a whole bunch of steps and be where all these other movements were at the same time. And so, you know, I've done, for instance, a lot of work with ex-Panthers from David Hilliard to Elaine Brown to, you know, various folks. And, and but, but one of the questions that I all, have always had about that is that, for instance, Oakland in the 1960s, had a lot of factories, right? Had a lot of factories, had a lot of black folks working. Even though there was a, a large unemployment, there was still a lot of black folks working. And you had this period where if you look at some of their books, they all have a self critique that by the late sixties, their rallies that they would throw would be mainly white folks there, right? They didn't have that they, they weren't permeating the black community the way that they should have, right? And I believe part of it is that they, they also neglected class struggle for this, because there were black folks that 
they could have organized along those lines, that they could have shut things down and kept some of the factories from moving that ended up moving. Right now, we're at a place where there are things to admire in other movements in other countries that we can more closely replicate at the stage that we're at right now, or, or look to getting to that stage. Like we're not where they are, where are in India, but that's something that we could get to, that we could work to get to quickly. Yeah, so, and it takes organizing here and pointing to those other things that get folks inspired to those other movements. Yeah, two things crossed my mind as you were speaking. One was, I think we may have, I think you touched on this in various ways in our last conversation, but the ways in which you said in the 1960s, there was a move away from organizing workers to students. And part of what was, to your point, part of what was happening contemporaneous in the 1960s and 1970s was the Black Studies movement, especially in the Bay Area. Um, Especially all over over the country. Where my parents met was at the San Francisco State Strike to that which established Black studies. Yeah, so I was just thinking about, I wonder if some of that abdication of class struggle or some of that energy was siphoned off to these, I, w- I would argue equally important struggles because you know I'm a, I'm a product of the, I went to UC Berkeley for my PhD. I'm a product of those struggles. I'm a black studies PhD. So that was one thing I was thinking about. And the second thing is like the eternal colonialism thesis, right? Because part of what you, you're talking about. So in the, in the at that moment, 1960s and 1970s, there is this idea that of the, fir- the third world and the first world and, and a lot of these people understanding themselves as colonized subjects. And of course, Amilcar Cabral was critical of this because of sort of what you're talking about, that the stages are different and that the contradictions are different and the historical and material conditions don't map on in that way. But nonetheless, I wonder if this turn to the internal colonialism thesis by anybody from Robert Allen to, you know, at the time, Stokely Carmichael and and Charles Hamilton, Bob Blonner, William Tabb, a whole bunch of people are talking about this internal colonialism model. I wonder if that's a manifestation of skipping over, like leaping to the stage that these colonial countries were at, but neglecting what the actual material conditions were here? Well, first, I'm not gonna lie and say I know all of those names you said. However, I do know Stokely Carmichael and have had many conversations with Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael, back in the day. And what I will take it from is that often I look at philosophy and theory in two ways, not only what it's saying, but what what the resulting actions are that those theories lead us to, right? And so there there are a lot of theories that seemingly have a class analysis to them, and not seemingly, have part of a class analysis to them, but somehow lead to this idea that ends up leading to an idea that they're, that having a revolution of the working class to overthrow the ruling class is not a priority, right? And ends up, so for instance, and I, ha- I have a lot of friends that have been in or were in, and I was definitely affected by the African People's Socialist Party, also known as Uhuru, but they had this theory that there is no real white working class, right? And so, and that they put that out quite often and still have this to this day. 
what that leads you to is this thing that of that saying you're not going to you're not going to organize you're not going to be part of class struggle it leads you to just this idea of organizing this group of folks that at some point later is going to get together and do this thing it it, it obfuscates what the nature of the struggle is right and uh, and where our power actually lies so for instance AAPRP, which was what Stokely Carmichael created, All African People's Revolutionary Party, um, when, when he was Kwame Ture, they had this line that they're not fighting for anything here. They are wanting to fight for a United Socialist States of Africa. Sounds good. I'm down for that. Have a United States Socialist States of Africa. But what they said were they were creating a black intelligentsia to kind of go over and help create the technical, find the technical needs in Africa. All of my friends that were in that are now big executives at, at companies, right? Like, I mean, you know, maybe at first they had a spook who sat behind the door idea or something like that. And they're getting the knowledge so they can bring it to the United Socialist States of Africa or something. But basically, those theories stop people from doing what we need to do to organize the working class here. And the only liberation we're going to have is if we have the entire working class overthrow the ruling class. And so any theory that leads me to this other thing that isn't doing that, I know doesn't actually lead me to freedom. And so I know your question was more about those specific theorists and if that kind of theory maybe, you know, led away from it. But uh, I, I can just take it from a standpoint of I've entertained those thoughts. I entertain those theories. And, and that's why I know about those organizations. And it basically is some, you know, a theory that that basically just makes people feel okay doing what they're doing because it doesn't call for organ, you know, it doesn't call for organizing at the, the, the things that are hard, right? The things that are hard to do. So I, I and and so and and I'm not saying that everyone that subscribes to the, uh, all those all the folks that that I know even the ones that I said that ended up doing something else, they're very earnest, right? Very, very much wanting to look for a way to change things. And but I just think that that idea, because it's not applicable, because it, it leads you, it basically says you can't organize in the United States because, you know, the differences among the sections of the working class are so great that it's a whole entire different struggle just leads people to not organize in, in, in a way that builds power. Under, under this system, since capitalism, the crux of capitalism, power under capitalism comes from the exploitation of labor. If we're not organizing around that, no matter what your idea is about, you know, what comes first and what the human nature that created capitalism is, you don't have any power under it unless you can shut industry down. And if you have a theory that's telling you to do other than that, 
then it's something that's leading you away from that and it's allowing people to just kind of write more books about what their, you know, what their ideas are and not challenging even the writers of those books to do anything different with their, with their work. So down with books, I'm just kidding. No, okay. no, no, I'm yes. not saying that. I'm just saying right. those particular theories have, have led to, to paralysis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's so interesting. This actually leads to my next question, which I think in part, again, you answered, you have such prescient answers, but it's about this whole cast phenomenon. So I don't know if you've heard, there was this book that came out this year by a woman called Isabel Wilkerson that was called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. And it essentially argued that the U.S. is a caste system, right? And that, and as, you know, somebody like Oliver Cromwell Cox dispelled this approach in the 1940s, but it's returned, right? And so I guess I also had my own critique of, of this book that came out and of the idea that the U.S. is a caste system. But I wonder, what do you think about this return to caste as a way of describing the conditions of Black people in the United States? So this idea that there's a white caste the upper caste, there's a middle caste that's, you know, other ethnic, non-Black ethnic groups, and then Black people are at the bottom, and that is this sort of naturalized relationship that really describes the relationship, the, the realities of Black people and of racialized people in the United States. And that sort of class, so the word capitalism never appears in that book, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not just Wilkerson. Many people even you know some some wings of the Adolf movement use the uh, American descendants of slaves use this caste description, and so I wonder, what do you make? Like, why does this idea keep returning? What do you make? Yeah, about? yeah, and and not speaking even to that particular book, but to the idea that you you put out there, which has been put out a lot, as you mentioned, there is always going to be an effort to obfuscate what the what our primary what our primary contradiction in this system is. And mm-hmm. that is, it, it's, it's, you know, this won't be the last book that's written in that way, right? Sure. And, 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 and the importance of it is though, that there are many people investigating and embracing radical ideology at this point, right? And so to, to, have, to have an analysis that, has a high a hierarchical analysis that is not related to function is it's scientifically bunk because the reason that we have different levels in this system has to do with keeping this keeping our economy functioning right it's not mm-hmm. just you know and so if you want to look at the different levels without even arguing that there are white people that are in the working class and that, that are at these, t- you know, we don't have to argue that because also there are differences inside the working class. That's how, that's how capitalism works. It, how, it, how, it, how it stays in place is having the working class working and get fighting against each other and mm-hmm. using sections of the working class to oppress, oppress other sections of the working class. But to disembody that from the actual function of exploitation, of economic exploitation of labor, 
is is a is a purposeful thing. It's not just like somebody accidentally comes up with this. That idea is directly arguing with the idea that says, "Hey, we have a way to take capitalism down." It the the idea is to 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 give people an explanation of inequality that has nothing to do with the economic system that we're in. It's, you know, I, I mean, we can, and, and again, I haven't read that book, so I can't actually argue it on the merits, or argue against the merits of what they've said, but I know just in the broad strokes about what it says and, and, and other things that have put that out that, you know, the way culture works, it comes out of the way that we survive. It comes out of how we live, how we clothe ourselves, how we house ourselves. And culture is created to uphold the system that helps, that, that organizes how that is, right? So, and that system is capitalism. And it works, and, and it works off the, the basis of people creating a thing and putting their labor into something that's sold at a much higher rate than what they're paid, right? And, and it's the reason we got brought over here in, to the United States in the first place was to be exploited, right? Was to have our labor exploited in the ultimate way possible. So to extract the exploitation of labor from an analysis of race, to extract the exploitation of labor from an analysis of how society works is just irresponsible in the and 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 it's just scientifically unsound. Yeah, and one might argue, and by one I mean me, that it's a that's in and of itself as a class project, right? So it's these petty bourgeois Negroes who are putting forth this argument that because white people are mean to them in first class, that we must be in a caste system because no matter how much they achieve, no matter how much they accumulate, they're still treated like niggas, basically. And so this is sort of, you know, and so it becomes a way to, as you're saying, conceal expo yeah. economic exploitation. It's and like, hey, I'm, yeah, it's like, I got it bad too, you know, like, so obviously it's not about, you know, and, and you could imagine like, you know, you're, you're, you know, you, you, you work at McDonald's and, you know, you got a, a black owner of the franchise telling you how bad they got it, that they're in your same boat and they're not right. And, no. and, and, but if they use that analysis, they can be, it's very convenient. Right. And so, but I, I would, I would say this, like sometimes when we say, that those folks are black bourgeois and that's why they're putting it out. I wouldn't give them that, that out, you know, like I, obviously in, in my case, I've recently, I'm not, I can't say I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not working class, but I'm not putting out that line. And, and also there are people that aren't bourgeoisie that believe in that line and put it out there. Right. So I think, Sometimes if we do, if, if we, you know, there, there is some truth to that, that people are, people are creating theory that protects them in their status 
but there's also the theory itself that exists and needs to be argued with separate from them because there are people that are buying into that theory that aren't being protected by that status, right? And that, that's who we're worried about. You know, those the, the folks that have that status right now that, that are making that argument, you know, like we're not waiting on them to join a revolution in the first place. If they do, that's cool, you know, like that. But the, the point is, is that they are arguing on behalf of keeping a system that is the basis for exploitation and the base, which is the basis for the oppression that we, we encounter. Because some of the folks that I agree with could also, are also in that, you know, like if you look at a Paul Robeson or a, you know, or a, a W.B. Du Bois, you know, they weren't, you know, they, they were, I mean, I don't know if you would call them petty bourgeoisie, but they, they had more access to things. So then, then just their, you know, average everyday working class person and the same thing with me. So I would say there's two lines of attack is that this theory protects them, but it also is wrong because even if, even if, you know, somebody comes up with some some credibility, like there are people on Twitter that will put that line out that are not ruling class, are not bourgeoisie, are not black bourgeoisie, but they buy into it and they right. buy into it hook, line, and sinker. And well, so it's, in we, the, it's in the service of petty, the black petty bourgeoisie, yeah. and because because they have a much larger platform, object like if we're you know objectively speaking, they have a they have a much larger platform and much more influence because of the ways in which media, social media and the cultural apparatus are in the service of the ruling class. And so Definitely. it's their ability to influence, I would say that why we need to push back, even though, as you're saying, they're not the, the, the sort of revolutionary subjects we need to focus on, but their influence is quite great, especially in the oh, yeah. celebrity culture. So, so there's a reason for, for example, Oprah is, it's the Oprah book club book, right? Oprah and, all these celebrity, Mariah yeah. Carey taking pictures with the book because it, as you're saying it, it lets them say like, we're black, so we're oppressed too, which completely yep. obfuscates how they are complicit and actively engaging in these forms of oppression and exploitation or or, or, or invested in a system that is con constituted by those, those processes, I, right? Yep, yep, I totally, totally with you there. Yeah, that I mean, that's the thing is that even the folks that aren't as obviously in that place, you know, I think because of how, how because of how things have been defined lately, where it's like, okay, listen to so listen, you know, uh, you know, you could just so, somebody that has these this analysis that serves the petty bourgeois, they can get over by saying, hey, I'm black, so everybody should listen to me. Like, you know, like it, we should have representation in the way that this is put out. It doesn't really matter what I'm saying. Like, don't even argue with the point that I'm making because I fit this category that we've said we need more representation in. And, and then there, we don't have a real, and not, we don't have a real debate going on that allows folks to figure out 
what's real and what isn't, right? And so we have yeah. folks putting out, you know, even calling themselves radical, right? And I'm not sure if this, you know, what calling themselves radical and putting out a line that, that basically says you shouldn't get involved in trying to organize the working class, right? Mm -hmm. And, and the, a line that clearly says that, but because they're saying I'm radical, they can get away with saying those things. And, and in certain cases with, with certain folks, like I know I personally have tried to get folks to promote, for instance, some of the strikes that were going on in, in mm -hmm. connection with BLM and things like that. But there's been a resistance to it. Mm -hmm. There's been a resistance to it because it doesn't fit the doesn't fit what they're trying to put out there, right? And what they're trying to put out there is a line that they, they may be, you know, is a, is a line that, that says that all we need to do is change the way we, you know, the way we visualize things, the way we talk about things. And, and somehow there will be this amorphous idea of revolution happening, you know? Mm -hmm. and, so anyway, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It's, you know, it's akin to the call, all this, you know, people pointing out the that Biden, Biden has the most diverse, quote unquote, cabinet, as if that means something. Because ideologically, they're absolutely the same. They just are in different bodies and that's supposed to mean something, right? That there's a Native American, you know, they're putting this, the first Native American person up in a cabinet that they, that Kamala, is you know black and indian that they got Buddhist or whatever as the transportation whatever and he's you know he's gay and all this shit as if the all these people aren't yeah. invested in empire well you know my only optimism about it is we get to show people like okay that's all bullshit you know after it'll take some time but like when obama got elected a lot of people didn't want to hear about it for a long time, you know, like he was deporting way more people, he was bombing, all that kind of stuff. But at least we now, that, that's the, the small bit is that we can say, okay, it doesn't matter whether you got a black president or not. It doesn't matter whether you got a black woman vice president. We know that it doesn't, on, on you know, along with the same stuff we're talking about, he's got a, a Cuban anti-communist, head of the Department of Homeland Security. And there are people lauding him. Matter of fact, Biden said that's his progressive person. His first statement out the gate is about how anti-communist he is, right? So now we got the head of Department of Homeland Security who had, who, whose whole setup was racist oppression in disguise of, of anti-terrorism, who's now, going to be redialing that whole apparatus in the time when there's so much of this movement become, uh, of people becoming more and more left, more and more radical. My prediction is that that person is picked because he's going to be redialing the apparatus of the Department of Homeland Security to be focusing on anti-communism, on anti to be trying to, to push back some of this tide. And it's, it was 
through the whole lesser of two evils that we were able to get. So if they were doing that under Trump, at least people would be be pointing and saying, look, this is fucked up. This is fascist. There will still be people pointing at it and saying it's fascist, but you'll have a whole group of folks that are like, give them time. You know, it's, it's he's a Democrat and he's trying to do the best he can and all of that kind of stuff. And people won't be calling out the fascist policies that that get put out there. I hope I'm wrong, but it it seemed to be a signal that that was the first thing he decided to talk about. You're absolutely not wrong. Of course, as you, you may or may not know, all of my work is about anti-communism, well, the conjunction of anti-communism and anti-Blackness, but it, it goes back to the, the Antifa and, and outside agitator narrative that was permeating all of these uprising around racial justice the the you know the socialist or the communist is always the easy specter right mm -hmm. even even beyond the cold war and one might argue that the transition from the communist to the terrorism as you know that there's a the at the apparatus that led to the anti-terrorism regime was comes out of the anti-communist apparatus that was in place that first shifted to, you know, from COINTELPRO being against the Communist Party to being against Black liberation movements, then gangs, right? This turned to gangs and mm -hmm. RICO and all so the stuff weed and seed program and all that. Yeah. So anyway, so I don't think you're wrong. I think that we need to brace ourselves and I, and if we look at for, you know, anyway, I can well, I would say not brace ourselves, but turn it up because the because really there's no way to the, the, the only thing that we got going is the, that and not the only thing, but the the fact that, you know, and as I said before, 43% of the population of all ages in the United States say say openly on many different surveys that they would rather have a socialist society. Now, people will argue like they don't even know what socialism is or whatever, but that's that's a giant number, 43% of all ages, 51% of all millennials, right? And, and that we have these, not only all those strikes, we had, you know, these militant outbursts all over the country, you know, uh, f around Black Lives Matter. This is a moment. And I don't think, and, and I think the worst thing that we could do is, I don't know, and so I'm, I'm being contradictory. The worst thing we could do is worry about it, right? The best thing to do is just, is to be doing the right kinds of organizing, doing the right kinds of campaigns to show what these ideas uh, are about, to show what these ideas can lead to, to show the power of that analysis, right? And so, and I know you, you, this probably falls into the framework of what you meant by brace ourselves, but I'm just, I just want to make it clear for those listening that it's, sure. it's, 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 it's something that it, there's, there has always been a certain amount of paralysis around people worrying about what might happen in response, right? Mm -hmm. That response is always worse when the organizations are down, right? When they're, when they're, when they're not uh, pushing forward. And, the, and, and they're, the worst thing they hate is someone to be outward with their ideas 
and mm -hmm. openly connecting with the community. Sure. No, that's a, I think that that's a good caveat that you raised. I want to talk about your new project for a second. Picked up by Amazon. So it was described on deadline as dark, absurdist comedy, dark, absurdist comedy. So can you just tell us a little bit about what is the story you want to tell with this series? And also, like, why is absurdism so important to your work? Hmm. Well, I'm not going to tell what the story is. I'm going to tell with this because it's so we still got a while for it to come out and I want that to be it. And, and part of what I do is giving you maybe what you don't expect. And I've done it with music and with this, right? It's interesting what we call absurd and what we don't. And, and some of it has to do with what we're used to and what we're, it's, it's things being juxtaposed. Like if you think about it before, you know, with a movie, somebody gets out of their car, then all of a sudden they're in an office. Like we didn't see everything that happened, but we're juxtaposing two ideas and, and saying, you get what happened, right? You, you understand the relationship between these two things. That's just simple editing and it's how we know how to, to so it doesn't even seem like anything, it's, but, but it actually is two ideas being juxtaposed and, and, and we can get various things out from that. But what I'm doing is juxtaposing ideas and pointing out contradictions that aren't always pointed out, right? And so then that feels a lot more, that feels absurdist, right? That feels, and, and so that's fine. And I'm fine with that word. Matter of fact, I put that word in there. But what, you know, a lot of what I'm doing is the same thing that maybe a lecture might do where if you have an elect a lecture with which is has an analysis what you're doing is you're taking you're, you're saying you know out of all of the ways in which the system works or whatever this is that I'm doing a lecture about there are all of these these hundreds of contradictions or millions of contradictions but this contradiction right here this is really important pay attention to this contradiction and this contradiction right there that's really important so you are you are heightening contradiction in that way right you're you're like heightening the contradiction and, and often organizers and agitators will talk about how do we heighten the contradictions here right so you're you're exaggerating that contradiction and contradiction is at the heart of say irony right Tragedy and comedy both have irony in, in common. You know, if you th think about a, a, a good comedian, a stand, good stand-up comedian, often they'll be saying something and it's not something that's alien. They're not talking about a situation you never heard of. You're not listening to it to be like, I wanna learn about what it's like to go on Tinder. You know, you, like I never heard of that or whatever. They're talking about something that people know about and they're making observations about contradictions in the world that 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 laughter comes from a recognition of that that contradiction. And, you know, and and there are people that are on a higher wavelength and they're like, I think Dave Chappelle is doing it, do does a lot of it very well 
and 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 is to the point where he's just telling a story, right? Like if you took it separately, it's like there's no punchline in a lot of his things, right? And there are a lot of storytellers throughout time that have done that, and 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 and, and so comedy and tragedy are both pointing out those contradictions that that help us to understand things because the contradictions I'm pointing out are ones that people aren't nor used to having pointed out, then it's, it feels a little bit more absurdist. And, and also some of the things I do might be more absurdist because I'm talking about larger philosophical ideas. And instead of like having two people talk about it and say, you know, I think this, well, I think that, and this, you know, that's, that's a fine way to do it. Like, you know, my dinner with Andre or whatever that I like that movie a lot. And, and for folks that don't know, I mean, you, there are a lot of, lot of uh, films that, I mean, you see uh, the young Karl Marx, they're there actually arguing theory. Right. And, and so that that's in there, that's in that mode. But what I'm doing is I want people to feel the those ideas, right? To feel those points. I don't want to just talk about those things. I want to take people through an experience that has them feel it. So I'm use in those cases the the techniques I use sometimes would be called fantastical or magical realism, which has been way overused. So I don't even use it but you're 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 figuring out a way to talk about these larger ideas that might be normally looming over our heads and guiding what we're doing right and instead of just explaining them so those the those are some of the things that i do and it's similar to what i do in in songwriting is i'm looking for the thing that makes you feel this idea i'm not like you won't hear me being like you know, in 1983, you know, this happened and Congress did this or whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think the closest I come to that is uh, head of state. That's the closest I come to that. But yeah, so that's why I do that. Okay. <laughs> so it's on Amazon. Are there yeah. any contradictions there that Amazon is like the evil corporation and then you know, you're yeah, I mean, on Amazon. Yeah, I mean, it's the same contradiction I've been in since the coup has come out, right? Like, first of all, I, I would say this, that a lot of us have been fooled because let's just take entertainment companies, Amazon, Netflix, Disney, Warner. I mean, Disney owns FX and Hulu. Warner owns HBO, HBO Max, Netflix. They're all owned by the same people. <laughs> like the Vanguard Group is one of the biggest investors in, in all of those. And then another one you'll see pop up with all of those is the Black the BlackRock Fund. And so it's the same owners kind of like being like, let's see who gets to the finish line first, right? And so all of these companies are at very, I mean, Vanguard Group also owns Facebook, which is also Instagram. They also own Twitter, right? So we get put these figureheads who are running it for them and also obviously making a lot of money. It's all part of the same system. And sometimes we get 
shown like here is the evil corporation. If only people, if only this corporation stopped acting like that, then capitalism would be kind of cool, right? But they've been, it's been that way forever. I mean, the mining towns and all of that kind of stuff uh, that, that, that comes from that same tendency that, that, and by tendency, I don't mean habit, but the, the same movement of capital to consolidate and to lower costs and, and, high, and maximize profits, it, you know, it's all working for the same people, right? You know, the, the one thing somebody could say is, well, you could create your own alternative distribution networks or whatever. And it's not something that hasn't crossed my mind, but when I look at the people that I know that are doing that, they become tiny capitalists, right? Because it's what ends up having to happen, even though they don't want to. I mean, good friend of mine the, is the president of Epitaph Records, who put out a couple cool albums. He used to be in the RCP, right? And he's a good guy still, right? But the point is, is that the, and, and Epitaph Records itself was started by a band that wanted to put out the rest of their friends' music, right? And in order to stay alive, it ends up growing into this thing that is now this multi-million dollar corporation is still thought of as an indie, but people keep looking for different ways to get out of this shit. And the reality is we're gonna need a revolution, right? And it's not gonna come from, and, and, and how do you get to that? Am I just talking about like, cause there is a way to keep saying, oh, it doesn't matter. We just need a revolution. And you're talking about some pie in the sky thing, but I'm talking about the steps to get there as well. And so the real change comes from as, you know, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but we are going to, in order to create a revolutionary movement, a prerequisite is going to be us having a mass militant, uh, radical labor movement that can shut down parts of industry, right? So, and what I'm doing is making pieces of culture that hopefully lend to that idea happening and help people want to be in stuff. And so, you know, our very first album came out on EMI records, which EMI doesn't exist solely itself. Maybe it is in Europe still, but a major corporation that since then has been broken up into a lot of different companies and expanded in different ways. You know, our, our album Party Music was first put out by Warner, right? Mm -hmm. Which, as I said, same owners, Vanguard Group, all that kind of stuff, right? Our last, our latest album was put out by Interscope, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it, you know, my point has been to get into that stream of traffic. And, you know, and there are people that definitely disagree with me. I haven't talked to, for instance, my friend Jello Biafra, but I'm sure he would have a lot of shit to talk. And because when I first met him, he was like I saying, oh, I hate The Clash because they were on Capitol Records. But to me, that's the model of if I'm going to be making music, I want my music to get to more people, 
to get yeah. them to get involved in a movement. So, you know, that's basically where that is. Yeah. The, so the question is, is there a contradiction? Maybe. And it's the same contradiction that I've, I've been working with this whole, my whole career. Sure. But, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's, I, I also would like to say what I also reject is the notion of some sort of gentle capitalism, some sort of like idea mm-hmm. that you, you know, you support the smaller capitalists and somehow yeah. like, and, and it's interesting, like if I would have done a deal with Netflix, you wouldn't be having the same, there, there wouldn't be the same question. And part of it is because of how we've all been taught to look at this. And I don't mean same question by you, because I think you asked it because that's probably a question that folks are wondering, right? But because we, we, we kind of have been taught to think about the idea that we can somehow abstain from certain kinds of capitalism and therefore vote with our dollars in some way shape or form yeah but that is not that's not something I subscribe to because I have seen that that whole idea of voting with your dollars is something that came up in times that in which they were trying to guide people towards boycotts and away from strikes exactly yes yeah and and it's and it's not effective and it's only effective to the extent that they would like it to be seen as effective. I think uh, Manning Marable in uh, How Capitalism Under was that Manning Marable? How Capitalism yeah, uh-huh. Underdeveloped Black America. He has a study, and of course it's 1980, but it's it. I think it it it's definitely uh, relatable. He talked about how in 1980 Jesse Jackson had this boycott Coke campaign. And um, and it was because Coke was giving different prices to black liquor store owners or whatever. And so with this whole idea of supporting black business, they had a big campaign that went on for 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 months and maybe years where it was like buy Pepsi instead of Coke to show Coke this and that. And eventually and, and it went on for a while. And Jesse Jackson met with Coke and something got worked out. I don't know, but Manning Marable did a study where he was like, all of the profit from that Coke got from all of those black liquor stores, which was the ones throughout the South and the Midwest, is e- was equal to the discretionary fund for one year of Coca-Cola, meaning the funds that they had their executives buy lunch with. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So meaning that they actually pose no economic threat to Coke at all. But the reason that Coke did give in in that way is because it was time, it was good advertising for them, right? Yeah. To, 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 and, and it wasn't really like they're not paying workers more or whatever. They're just doing a better deal with some of the, the uh, outlets. What those sorts of things also do is they advertise something else, not just the product of Coca-Cola, but it advertises the idea of sort of a participatory economy. That So it sells the idea that you can get what you want by choosing what you buy, 
that you can get the world you want by just choosing what you buy. And so same thing with the Nike boycott and all those sorts of things. It takes the focus away from shutting down industry and organizing on the job to this idea that, you know, I don't buy that stuff because it's, you know, not doing the thing that I want them to do. And so therefore I'm gonna change it by not buying it. And, and it's a way to just feel good because you're not even organizing something to get other people to not buy it. You just kind of are doing that. And maybe you are doing that too. It's, it's, it's just changes what our idea of power is. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that was in the Black Brahmin chapter because he's making a broader point about the Black managerial class. But anyway, but oh, the other thing that that reminds me of is Jared Ball's The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power, where he's making a similar argument that this idea that the Black community has the equivalent of the GDP of a small country, that that's, that's bullshit. Like, it's not, it's all part of the, we've bought into that. It's all part of a sort of mm. propaganda machine that whose ultimate aim is like Black capitalism. Yeah. And even um, a GDP of a small country. So, like, it's a lot of countries <laughs> where we've got billions of people under the foot of capitalism. So, right. you know, like, it's the, the question is more the relationship, but yeah. Sure. So. Yeah, no, that was it. That was, I think that that erased some excellent points there. So we, we got maybe 10 minutes left and I wanted to get to some of these, the questions that persons in, in the audience or attendees from the last event asked that we didn't get to. So we're gonna try the lightning round again. These are the short, snappy <laughs> answers. We'll see how it goes this time, but we yeah. maybe we'll get to two or three. So person, this was Darius Brimage. He asked, do you think you can be radical and be willing to compromise on some of your stances or how change is enacted? I mean, it's all a compromise, right? Like, I mean, to me, being radical isn't about, you know, a lifestyle necessarily. To a certain extent it is, but but it's not about like, as I just said, I only buy these things. I only do the, you know, but I think it's about how do we get people to, you know, what are, what are we doing to get people to be able to organize at where their levers of power is? And what I'm pointing out that we've left out are the levers of power that, that happened on on our job site right and so that's that's where it is but i i guess the the question is a little vague but yeah i think we're always or you know like i mean to not compromise would be like we're gonna strike until we you know have a system in which the people democratically control the wealth that we create with our labor but so it's about figuring out how to build a movement how to get more people involved in that and, and getting us to a, a level where we can create a revolutionary movement that, that's viable. That was pretty short. That was good. I think we get two more. Okay, next question. This is from Austin Gallus. I think this is a pretty good one. Do, you, do we need to revive an explicit theory of value which is capable of focusing the attention of working class movements on the mechanisms of disruption and anti-capitalist power building or is theory subordinate to the collective experience that emerges from social relations in the workplace and consumption of the right kinds of popular media? 
So I would take that to mean what is the role of theory in all this? Theory yeah. and experience. Yeah. So, you know, I think the question is not just having the theory out there and not just having somebody see the theory. The question is how do people understand the theory more, right? How do people, and, and, and it's also how do you get to more people, right? And so that is part of where, you know, where actual campaigns and movements and where organizing on the job and strikes come in because people, while they're engaged in changing their life, that's when they're understanding their, their role within the system as it is and their role and their connection to other people and where their power comes from. So that's where the theory even matters, right? Does it matter if people take the theory in and the process by which they go through taking the theory and getting it right takes their whole life and they're not able to even act on it because there is that portion. So the thing is that we need theory, but we have to, in order to be able to take it in, in the correct way, we need to be in action. And actually that process of certain kinds of actions is teaching more theory than the actual reading does. Because the reading often is trying to explain physical phenomena. And if people are in that physical phenomenon and talking about it and, and pointing it out, then, then, then they're creating theory as well. Okay, okay. All right, here goes another question, which is kind of, okay, kind of interesting. Okay, could you recommend charities or labor organizations to look into to support the abolitionment of labor exploitation? That's from Juliana Funkhauser. Mm. There's some organizations. So, so I should say this. I think that not only do we need a mass radical militant labor movement that can shut down pieces of industry that in order and, and shut down whole industries, in order to do that, we're going to need revolutionary parties. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm not, you know, like which party is the right one. We'll only know through movement and change and, all of these parties, whatever their line is now, it's going to be different in five yeah. years and different in 10 years. So one, I would say join a party with, that, has a, that has a goal of getting rid of capitalism and, and join a party that not only has that goal, but has as part of their strategy in being involved in, in labor struggles. Now I can say somebody that has, is kind of a party and kind of a labor organization at the same time, not kind of a labor, they are a labor, but that's IWW is one of those. They're not, I think they would, they would say that they're not a party, but that's some, some, that's the closest to the labor organization that has a goal of restructuring society. And they are doing work in, in fast food places. They're doing work in places that don't normally get organized. Uh, that, the industrial that, workers of the world. Yeah. And, and so, but there are, are also radical organizations that are doing things and, and, and have people in different unions that, that are trying to push it, push those to the left. 
And, uh, you know, but to be clear, there's only 7% of the workforce that's unionized right now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, our, the key is us organizing that other 93%. And, and, and the rest of the, the ones that are organized, those organizations, the base will push them to the left. The answer is, I don't have a bunch of organizations that you should join. I don't have that list, but maybe what will happen here is if wherever this is being broadcast, there'll be a free fall of people putting links to their organizations that are radical and doing work to create labor movements, they'll 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 put those lists there because, you know, there are a lot of radical parties that I could say that are out there. I I would like them to tell me if they are doing work in those areas I'm talking about because right. I'm, I'm ignorant of that. But I do hear their larger political line about what's going on in the world. So yeah. Okay, here's a good question. Robert Bashara wants to know. Will we collaborate on an academic artistic project? Whoa, we meaning me and you. <laughs> that I'm, sure, I'm sure at some point it will, it, it will happen once I, I'm trying to use this moment to get all of these projects made because I don't know how long this moment is gonna last. So I'm doing, I'm getting, yeah. getting all of this stuff done and put out there so that I can use those as my thesis, you know? And so, uh, yeah, so, so I'm sure along with that, there's something that will happen and we're collaborating right now. We are collaborating, look at that. <laughs> look at the universe showing up. Okay, last question, I swear, last question. How can we organize multiracial unity in our struggles as opposed to separatism? I think it has to do with being involved in an actual campaign. You know, it, it, even if you were to break it down inside an organization, the times when you see organizations fighting each other and splitting up is when nothing is going on. And they're like, mm. they get to just talking about ideas. Well, actually, this is the faction that believes we should be doing this, this is the faction that, but you see them coming together when there's a, a winnable campaign for them to be involved in. Mm -hmm. And and then you see the the struggles between those the the questions and those ideas they come out in more real ways because it's about is this is that idea working for this is that idea working for this what's happening and and it's not that splits don't happen but they happen a lot less when there's there's actually something to be working on so that's just using an organization as a model. A, a an example I like to use a lot because it definitely had a big influence on on me is when I was 15 and I was involved in helping the Watsonville cannery workers strike and basically just passing out flyers but working with them and it, this was in Watsonville which is on the coast Central California coast the workers of the, the cannery workers were mainly in three groups as as far as ethnicity was uh, Filipino workers, Mexican workers, and Portuguese workers. And there had for years been many like splits and, you know, people like, there was a lot of racist ideas about each group. The kids didn't get along, people fighting each other on the street, you know, sort of like, you know, cliquish, gangish sort of stuff happening. And, you know, like just a, a lot of fighting. 
And there had been, and, and meanwhile, there had been sorts of separate like calls for multiracial unity. Like we shouldn't be fighting like this, let's get together, this and that. They were largely unsuccessful at first. And then separately from that, they had these strikes that where one, some, sometimes there was a campaign where the Filipino workers went out on strike and the other two didn't, you know, what was, weren't working with them and that failed. And separately, the Mexican workers went on strike. So this, when I came to it, they were all working together on this strike. And it wasn't that the problems hadn't existed, but now they had a reason to say this needs to work. And so now all of a sudden they had these programs in which they were like talking to each other because they had a reason to come together beyond this like philosophical and moralistic thing that was this pie in the sky of later on, or this is how it should be. It was like, look, these things are about to make us lose this strike, right? And so there were all sorts of instances of like the community calling each other together and trying to figure it out and like, problem solving and mediating and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and you had a unity that was based on something as opposed that, that was based on something material that people could grab right here and now that grew out into something more. And I think that's like a model of, of what happens when people have something to work on together, then, then things are worked. It's, there's a more substantial thing. It's not just like, Hey, I'm an ally, or hey, I'm a down. I'm I, I got solidarity because that's a solidarity in theory, but it becomes like okay, I have solidarity with you, and this is what we're gonna do together. This is how I'm helping this happen. So, in struggle is how we achieve that, and like you have to have a winnable campaign. And you don't have to win the campaign, but that has to be winnable because you have to be able to analyze it and figure out what was done wrong. If it's something where it's not even like, it's like just a, a, a theory, like multiracial unity. What does that mean? We don't even know. Like end racism. I've actually been involved in some campaigns where it was like, we're the International Committee Against Racism and we're, just, we're gonna end racism. And, you know, like, you can't even gauge whether you're winning or not, right? So, yeah. so you know, when you can, when when you have a winnable thing, then you can you can say, okay, we lost, and it's because of this, this, and this, or we're winning because of this and this and this. So, and 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 people come together in 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 real ways around stuff. So, yeah, Boots Riley, as always, informative, interesting entertaining. I always appreciate speaking to you. Oh, thank um, any, you. any final words? Anything you want to close with? No, I mean, I've just talked for like <laughs> a, a long time. So I'm sure, you know, you know, nothing comes into my head until I have to say it. So I don't know. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just, I'm excited about the opportunities that there are, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that are happening, that are reasons to be worried about the way the world is going. But when you look at where the population of the US, where the population of the world is and what folks are showing they're ready to do, 
it's exciting and it's an exciting time to, to be alive. And so uh, that's all I want to point out. Thank you. Thank you.